you're joining the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and this is the much acclaimed episode 115 acclaimed by whom or by who Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this is The Film Show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. The Film File, as it's affectionately called by, I was going to say everyone, but mostly us. Mostly us, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> we, I, I know this morning we aren't operating on uh, on full cylinders. I've got reasons. I, I'm assuming you've got work reasons. How are you? It's been a weird week. I had a whole day that I just did. I mean, I, I wanted to edit the podcast last week early. And I sat in front of my computer on many nights, procrastinating and finding other things to distract me from editing. And then it gets to the day that I've got off work. Because my whole idea was like, edit the podcast early. So my day off work on Tuesday, I could actually have a day off. And so it got to Tuesday and I had to edit the podcast. But I was exhausted as well. So I was literally, I got up, edited some, then passed out for four hours. Then got up again, edited the rest of it, passed out for four hours. And then I'd finalised all the editing on the Wednesday. So all my plans for the week of making something of, you know, well, the, the rather miserable weather we've had over this past week in Sheffield yeah. fell apart completely. So, yeah, it's been an interesting week. Uh, kids are off school, cinema's busier than it normally is, uh, and people are watching. People are still watching Morbius. I want to slap them as they're buying tickets. I know. I was slightly tempted, <laughs> slightly tempted to see it. Um, well, I got back late last night. We very last minute, as you said, it's uh, kids are off school. Uh, it's my um, Easter break as well. I worked on Tuesday, had Monday off and did nothing. I had plans to do lots and lots of things. There's some paperwork, the mortgage stuff, very boring, uh, planned the uh the rock show which takes hours to do this is this is a, a piece of cake uh if, if listeners if you don't know we are on no barriers radio the the podcast that you're listening to gets down cut down into an hour and uh and we do it every week and we get in some good listenership uh, and i also do a rock show for no barriers radio which is a it's not it's a bind but it's a lot of work if i was doing it live it'd be a piece of cake but because you pre-record things as you know you stumble and and you make fault on sometimes we make huge cavors, <laughs> so I'm a bit of a a bit of a perfectionist with it, and it takes what should be a couple of hours find the music, design the kind of nature of it, uh, but it takes it, it always takes much longer than I anticipated. Anyway, because we suddenly decided we were going to go on holiday, take advantage of the week, and and literally put a plan together and went to Edinburgh, which was lovely, you know. Um, Seems as though you've had worse weather here than we've had. Uh, we had snow for ten minutes. I don't know if you know the thing about Scotland; you get four seasons in a day. It's it's so true. One day it was sunny, uh, then it got really cold, then it snowed, and then it was sunny again. It was it was bizarre, but it was great to get away. But that meant that we drove back yesterday, and then I was shattered from that. Decided that a friend of mine's band was playing, and they've just changed their singer and there's been much controversy in in the rock press and uh, social media about this and so uh, uh, i thought i'll go down give him a bit of support didn't realize that they came on 11 as part of this festival and uh, by 10 o'clock i'm dead on my feet wanting to go <laughs> home but stick it out didn't get in till one and then just being back in my own bed i just I couldn't i couldn't drop off couldn't sleep I had a really restless night so got up today you sent a message to 
saying midday to start. I'm like, yeah, perfect. And then it's like my other half going, you know, it's like five to 11. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. Okay. Get my act together. But sadly, my act is not together. So the show will be what it will be. I was dreading the possibility of you sending me a message last night saying, should we do an early one tomorrow? Because I'm off out tomorrow because I had no prep done until this morning. <laughs> I, I, well, knew, I, I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I hadn't made any notes about anything. So it would have just been like, a, ah, and he's got to get up at 6 a.m. and type everything out ready. Uh. This week as well, in me downtime. I've decided to give myself a project for over April, which I'm calling the April Fools. I'm watching a comedy film every day through April. I'm yeah, picking, I saw that on Twitter. I'm picking out some which I've seen before, some of my old favourites like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's already been shown. But I'm also like selecting ones that I've either didn't enjoy when I first watched them, which I'm looking at Anchorman 2 there. It was better than what I remembered, but it's Ooh, still it's disappointing, not disappointing, wasn't it? Because I love Anchorman. It just overplays each of the jokes that the first film did, and that's where it lets itself yeah. down. There's moments in it that made me laugh, but I feel that the first Anchorman still stands up well, whereas Anchorman 2, it didn't stand up well at the time. It still doesn't. But I'm also uh, checking out films that I avoided for de deliberate reasons, and the first one of them that I checked out was... Well, let's just say that I posted out the other day. I'm doing a different comedy film every day during April. I'm currently watching Jack and Jill. After this finishes, I'm going to put a comedy film on. Oh, yeah, I saw that one. And <laughs> I and I guffawed uh, at it. And having seen Jack and Jill against my will, I think I turned up for a press show and thought it was something else. And it was Jack Ooh. and Jill. And I just sat there. I, I don't even think I finished watching it. I've only ever walked out of three films. And I think two of them are Adam Sandler films. So Jack and Jill came out the same year as That's My Boy. And I watched That's My Boy that year because I used to have this ruling that I watched watch an Adam Sandler film every two years. So that that way, when people, when people inevitably say, he's not that bad. In fact, he's gotten better in recent years. You can turn around and go, well, actually, no, he was still garbage last year. So I, I got away with not watching Jack and Jill until recently. And now I wish I could go backwards in time and slap myself in the face and say, no, get that film out your fucking mouth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I also caught up on Hot Rod, which have been recommended to so many times by so many Never people. Never seen that. Um, good things about it. Never seen it. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's as great as some people have led me to believe. But I had right. a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun with it. But some people rank it alongside Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. No, it's not. I was going to say, have you seen that? If you haven't, then you should put that on your list. Oh, that's getting rewatched. I mean, that gets rewatched once every six months anyway. So yeah, it's a, it's a popular one. For and me. have you seen the Dewey Cox story? Uh, I've got that on my list because that's one that I didn't quite like when I first saw it, but I think, okay, I, like I, think I wasn't in the right frame of mind at the time. If you've got any more suggestions, let me know, because I've still got like three and a half weeks of the month to get through, and I don't want okay. to have to delve into um, Paul Blart Mall Cop. Please give me enough films. Uh, it's, it's your choice of comedies, uh, things that you would normally think of as torture, okay. as opposed <laughs> to going, there well, are some great comedy movies that I've not seen, because I, I would well, just go back and watch the Mars Brothers. Okay, well, yeah, I've, I've seen. I, I want to dig out some Marx Brothers to watch. Um, I also want to dig out basically any of the. I mean, some like it hot is on my list. I, I yeah. love going back and rewatching that. But it's the one. It's the comedies that I've kind of made a choice not to watch for some reason or another, which is usually the ones that I, I think oh, I'm not, I, I don't like that person. That I'm right. wait, I'm hoping to see that maybe one or two of them are we pleasantly surprised by what comes out because there's loads of times that you're put off by an actor or a director or something 
And then when you came, get round to finally seeing them in something, you go, oh, didn't expect that. I mean, 22 Jump Street is a prime example for me. When that was getting released, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm over Jonah Hill. And really, right. Channing Tatum, comedy. Nah, can't see this working. And then when I finally got to watch it, man, what what's yeah, going 21 on? 21 Jump Street's good fun. I've never yeah. seen the sequel, but I've seen 21 Jump Street. Did you know there was going to be a crossover? between 21 Jump Street and Men in Black. Yeah, uh, that kind of got put on the sidelines and I'd, I'd really love to see that. Yes. <laughs> so I noticed we got some uh, some good feedback on Twitter again with our weekly Twitter challenge. The weekly Twitter challenge. What films would you reboot or remake? I mean, we've posited forward. I mean, obviously my one was Dread from last week. But uh, Grumpy Ducks put forward, I mean, Last Starfighter. Yeah, I'm with you on that well, one. Yeah, you know, apparently there's a reason that can't be remade there is a reason and, and it escapes me I, I have heard it mentioned there's a, a genuine reason that isn't remade uh, going to be remade max landis wrote a script for it yeah uh, but everyone just says no it's 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 off limits for uh, um uh, i'm assuming some sort of legality as opposed to that nobody wants it because yes yeah. it's, it's well worth it uh, medusa touch was definitely um an interesting shout richard burton yeah, and it's uh, he, also suggested Firefox, which I rewatched that last year as part of me Clint Eastwood's watching. Yeah, and I can kind of see where he's coming from because that film is not that good. But, good effects, good yeah, effects working. But out. the base story could pose for a really good film if handled better. Yeah, as I said last week, mine was the uh, man who haunted himself, which uh, uh, I think would be absolutely right to to be remade. There was a kind of a different version of it in the pilot. But when they rebooted in the early 80s, The Twilight Zone, mm. a Harlan Ellison story called Shatterday, which starred a very young Bruce Willis in his probably his first TV role, which is a very, very similar story to The Man Who Haunted Himself. But yeah, that's that's up there for me. So well, we need another Twitter challenge for this week. And mine is, what film score inspires you the most? When you hear a certain film score, it absolutely, it takes you to a time and a place. Yeah, exactly the same as Desert Island Discs, but what is the film score that when you hear it, it's the most inspiring? You can picture where you saw the film, how you felt at it. It's when you hear that particular piece of score. And don't go for the obvious. Don't go for this for Star Wars. And, you know, it's, it's clearly whenever you hear the Star Wars march. The thing is with Star Wars is that because that theme has been used in so many Star Wars films throughout the years, there's no one moment in time that it definitively yeah. resonates with me. Even when I watched it in like 77, when I watched the first film, it wasn't the music score that caught me attention. It was the, the spaceships, the lightsabers, because I was too young yeah. for the music score to actually impact on me. So... I, that's not one that I gravitate to. I think for me, I think the first music score that actually captivated my attention would be ET. Okay, there's something, um, there's something yeah, about that, yeah. that that as the bike lifts into the air, the da, 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 and as soon as I hear that now, I'm thrown back, and I'm thrown back to not watching the film. I'm thrown back to me uncle who had the picture disc album of the soundtrack and was playing it at right. his house. And it's one of those scores that just resonates with me on complete emotional levels as a result. Not only is it used beautifully in the film, and it is one of John Williams's finest scores as far as I'm concerned, but it's that emotional connection. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think Danny Elfman's theme for Batman is still iconic and sort of forgotten. I know it got kind of reused in the Joss Whedon Justice League and they, they, they played it through that. But that particular theme mm. just resonates. It, it, it connects me 
to the anticipation of seeing the film because I heard the score. I think I got the soundtrack album before I saw the movie and that tied me into it um, before I'd even seen it. I was that excited to see it. I mean, one of the first soundtrack albums I ever got was Logan's Run by Jerry Goldsmith, which is not an iconic score, but it was it was weird and electronic. But certain th- yeah. themes, uh, um, Jack Nietzsche's score for Starman, uh, the John Carpenter film, gets me every time. But yeah, film scores can be... Um, can just take you back to a time and a place. I mean, I've said many times, big John Carpenter fan, yeah. but other than Halloween, which is, I think, his most memorable score, not necessarily his best score, but his most memorable, it takes you back to that time. But out of this one, the film scores that, that when you hear them, take you to a time and a place, inspire you, inspire the moment, you know, make you think of that movie in a, in a completely, you know, emotional way. I'll have, I'll have a think to see if there's any others that, like, spring to mind over this coming week and we'll update next week uh, but check out on twitter and let us know on twitter any scores that really really capture your capture your mind emotions and send you on that nostalgic journey back into history indeed so on this week's show what have we got for you well of course we've got the action-packed news and box office as ever we'll be doing this week's deep dive And we're going off the beaten track a little bit with this one. We'll be looking at the 1960s big screen versions of Doctor Who starring Peter Cushing. That's an emotive sending me back to a time and a place right there. Yeah. We've got reviews of all the old knives that landed on Amazon this week. The outfit that arrived at cinemas and Apollo 10 and a half. And of course, we're going to give you plenty of chat, but let's get things rolling with this week's box office and the news. So we thought it last week, Morbius has taken a bit of a tumble at the box office. Well, in the US this weekend, of course, the Blue Hedgehog hits the top spot, Sonic taking 72.1 million over its opening weekend. A very strong start for the franchise. And another great hit for Paramount. Morbius, after its number one debut last week, is now in second place with a dismal 10.2 million taken this weekend, which is approximately a 74% drop off on the previous week. Uh, The Lost City sticks into third place with 9 million. Ambulance, Michael Bay's lower budget than normal action thriller, is in fourth place with 8.7 million. And The Batman still holding in there with another 6.5 million added to its total taking its domestic total to 358 million so far and worldwide 736. Meanwhile, here in the UK, the Fantastic Beasts Secrets of Dumbledore opens in the top spot with 5.8 million over the weekend, which makes it the third highest weekend opener of 2022 so far, just behind Sing 2, which took 6.8 million. In second place, obviously impacted by the fact that we're on Easter holiday break, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, took an additional 2.9 million for a total to date of 10.6 million. It's now the fifth highest grossing film of the year so far, just behind Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Following up in third place is the animated picture The Bad Guys, which holds number three with the lowest drop of the top 10, only dropped 29% between week one and week two. Fourth place sees Morbius with 740k and Batman in fifth place grossing another 623k for a total to date of 39.2 million pounds becoming the fourth biggest film in the DC Comics universe surpassing 2016's Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. Yeah, so for us in the UK, 
it's a busy old time with the Easter holidays, so we will see how much of an impact over the next week that the battle between Sonic 2 and Fantastic Beasts, and, and I've said to you, yeah. Fantastic Beasts just didn't connect. I saw the first movie, I couldn't be bothered with the second one. I hated, I mean, I really hated the first one. And I hated it because it's just a series of, it's going to sound strange, it's a series of set pieces that kind of put together a very weak narrative. Yeah, I'm with you on that, which is why we're not going to be covering Fantastic Beasts in a review. I've only seen the first Fantastic Beasts film, and that was the point at which I thought, uh, this is it, I'm done with this Harry Potter franchise now because it's no longer Harry Potter. Even the Harry Potter franchise, I kind of fell out of favour with towards the end. Yeah. because oh, When they when they uh, did the uh, Harry Potter and the Camping Trip of Doom um, and split the, yes. you know, split the last book into two, boy, did that film... Because our little boy has, uh, has become a huge Harry Potter fan and we bought him the entire run. And and I kept saying to him, you'll get to this one and it is Harry Potter and the Camping Trip of Doom. <laughs> and he thought I was I was joking about it and got to it and went, oh, that was so boring. Yeah. So it was just a cash-in. And then I thought, you know, if you're trying to cash-in to try and make the most out of, out of two, two films out of one book, you, you've lost me. You've lost me on this. But anyway, what else have we got in the news? Elsewhere in the news, every award season you hear the same old awards are pointless and have no relevance arguments. And what difference does Hollywood passing itself on the back make? Well, when Coda picked up Best Picture a few weeks ago, the result in that has seen a surge in Apple Plus signups in the wake of it. Their signups have jumped 25%, with viewings of the film going up 300%. Now, some of those signups might just be taking the seven-day free trial, so we don't know how permanent this spike is going to be. But I'm I'm hopeful that the new folk take a look around on Apple and like the general quality on offer there and stick around. Well, when it gets to my neat thing, mine is is Apple related for this I have, week. I have a suspicion it's the season that I'm still yet to watch, but I'm desperate. Ooh, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see where we I'm go with that one. Desperate to see. And speaking of awards, uh, the Academy moved their meeting that they were supposed to be having next week regarding Will Smith up from the 18th, and they had it a few days before we've recorded this show. The, the reason why they changed the date of it is because once Will Smith handed in his notice and set, resigned from his position at the Academy, it, they no longer were bound by a, a time frame that they had to give for him to put his defence forwards. So they could make the decision. The final decision that's been slapped on him, he's got a 10-year ban from all Academy-related events, which means no okay. more going to the Oscars. He can still be up for an award, but he will not be invited along to attend, and he can't get involved in any decisions. Will Smith has accepted his punishment and not even disputed it. He's completely, he thinks that they've made the most fair choice. They've not took his award off him, which is what we said last week that we didn't think he should do. Yeah. Because he still won an award for a performance. Yeah, which he deserved to win. You know, you yeah. can't change the fact that he was, um, he was nominated and won for a performance. What he did outside of that, as we've said before, was uh, unfortunate, yeah. perhaps unnecessary in the way that he, he, he conducted his business um, and deserved some kind of a punishment for it. And I think that seems seems fitting. Ten years is a long time. You yeah. get less for murder. With all the fallout that's happening with regards to the projects that he's being dropped from at this point in time, he's possibly not even going to get much of a mention in the next ten years anyway. I, don't, I, think, I think Hollywood has a short memory. Uh, the Academy also recognised that it failed in its duty on the night and should have acted swifter in preventing or removing the situation on the evening as, as i said um in our last show i think when you've got a fast-moving situation like that it's a live show your consideration is to get the show out more than anything else i, I think oscar 
can be forgiven for not quite knowing what to do. It was an absolutely yeah. unique situation. I mean, I know there's been incidents, the David Niven on stage when the uh, uh, streaker yep. got on stage, and you you have to deal with it there and then. And, you know, you, you even though it was a, not a great Oscar show, it still had a worldwide audience, and, and, and that is a consideration, getting the show over to that worldwide audience and not stopping the event. So uh, I think they were damned if they do and damned if they don't. I think yeah. they've handled it to the best of their ability. And with degrees of hindsight, yeah, you can always say could have handled this better. It's going to be interesting to see what they do next year with regards safeguarding measures that they will inevitably put in place. <laughs> Are they going to have like a wall between the audience and the stage? It'll be like Pink, it'll be like Pink Floyd yeah. putting a concert on. <laughs> but speaking of actors in trouble and at risk of losing careers, Ezra Miller has had quite a notorious past few years. Various allegations of harassment of attack and attacks on fans and other offset antics. Well, he was recently arrested for disorderly conduct and harassment in Hawaii. And Warner Brothers and DC execs have held an emergency meeting in the past couple of weeks, which according to a lengthy article in Rolling Stone, the decision has been made to pause all future projects involving Miller as well as all scheduled public appearances that were planned. And this now puts more into context the reshuffling of the DC slate so that The Flash is the middle of next year and the last of the DC films to come out. He's a very silly boy, basically, because he's not only got The Flash, he's got the movie we just talked about, the uh, Fantastic, Fantastic Beasts Beast series. Yep. He's signed in very heavily to, to Warners. You know what? what would be great? They do a Kevin Spacey, you know, with the, uh, um, the Ridley Scott movie. <laughs> Get they take him out, <laughs> and they, yeah, get 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 the guy from from the TV show, and <laughs> and you know, much loved by everybody. For most people, he's the Flash. As we said when they were reshuffling the slates, that's like we were pretty convinced that they'd already said that they'd finished shooting completely on the Flash. So why is it being postponed by a year? And now the context is there: a, they can't have him going out and promoting the film at this point in time, no. and b, if they make a decision that they have to make huge changes, they've got a year to reshoot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I don't know what the outcome from this this his latest escapade in Hawaii is, but but if the film was to go out now or go out in the next month, the press stories will all be about yep. his, 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 his legal runnings and his antics. So it, it makes perfect sense. I guess watch this space and, and see where they go with it. I was quite looking forward to seeing what Ezra Miller would do as The Flash. That was the only positives, like I've said before, that I drew from Zack Snyder's re-edited mm. Justice League is that The Flash got more chance to shine and it showcased more of what he could bring to it. It's just a shame that he, he seems to have self-sabotaged his career over the past few years with his antics in the personal life. And I do think that he genuinely needs help. I think that a few years, about a couple of years ago, when there was the initial report of him attacking a fan in, was it Iceland or something, and mm. in a bar, which the video looks like it was a joking kind of fight, but he still shouldn't have got physical with a fan. Maybe someone should have sat with him and got him some help, gotten some guidance, because there's been reports from the set of The Flash that whilst not abusive, violent or vocal, there was days that Ezra was clearly not engaged with the production and he was clearly struggling. So it, there's some failings that have gone on on all sides here. And unfortunately, the result is that you've got an actor who's now kind of out of control and yeah. unmarketable. An absolute shame. Uh, meanwhile, Warner's uh, dealing with the hierarchy being chopped and changed because the recent merger with Discovery has seen quite a few changes uh, made by David Zaslav, who's the new CEO of the now fully merged company, including, and 
this has been hilarious to watch the reaction of a certain hashtag supporting brigade on Twitter about. <laughs> I've got a story out to follow this one, so <laughs> you go for it. So Jason Killer, who was one of the execs that was key to the Snyder cut being made and was very supportive of Zack Snyder's projects, has been ditched. He's been let go because he was also the idiot who decided that HBO Max and cinemas should have the films released at the same time, which lost a chunk of money. What was great is like before any of the names were getting announced, all the hashtag brigade out there that I I love to see fall (laughs) apart were so convinced that he was going to be put in a prominent position. And they were like, yes, it's happening. It's going to happen. Everything's going to happen. And as soon as he was gone, and who's been left in charge of Warner Brothers Pictures? Toby Emmerich, who's very much against the Snyderverse and has been (laughs) since day one. Hey, and, and Toby Emmerich's got a great track record. I saw multiple posts the other day when this news came out of people with who usually use that hashtag genuinely saying does this mean we've lost and it's like oh you're finally picking up on this are you that you might be a small number of people making a lot of tweets but you're not huge business decision makers um, and sarnoff has also been let go she's been heading up the warner brothers and dc brands for the past few years channing dungy stays with warner brothers television casey Bloys sticks with hbo but huge swathes of the Warner execs have been chopped completely. And it's the Discovery executives who've been put in the very key prominent positions. I'm going to follow this up with some Zack Snyder news. Um, we've been talking on this show about Rebel Moon, his uh, Star Wars rip- uh, his Star Wars inspired movie. <laughs> anyway, initially got a lot of stir when he released some production art. Then it's gone very quiet. Anyway, some more casting. Carrie Elwes and Corey Stahl have joined the cast at this point. Can't tell you who they're playing because I just don't know. It's all shrouded but in mystery. It's shrouded in a, in a, in a, in a veil of force-like... Oh, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, two great actors. Love Carrie Elwes, of course, yeah. as Princess Bride. Uh, and Corey Stahl is just brilliant. House of Cards Everything and Billions, isn't he? He's done. He was in The Strain. He was yeah. in Ant-Man. He was in West Side Story. He's just one of those actors that I absolutely adore and always brings his A-game. And talking of DC, an Aqualad story. Uh, He's kind of the son, stepson of Aquaman. Um, He's been brought to HBO Max with the story You Brought Me the Ocean, uh, produced by Shalise Theron. The HBO Max series will explore the life of Jackson Jake Hyde, uh, a gay teenager living in New Mexico who becomes Aqualad. I don't know that story. I've never seen that that particular graphic novel i've heard of it but no no very little about it that's one to keep a lookout for and go in with fresh eyes just heading back to rebel moon a second flying our x-wings i mean flying our spaceships over there to see there's another two members of cast who've also been added this past week michael hewisman from game of thrones and the flight attendant and alfonso herrera who was in sensate and ozark so it's it looks like they're really packing the cast up for this two-part um episode four and episode um Let's be honest, we, we mock it because he's basically, it was a Star Wars pitch, but at the same time, we are kind of looking forward to it because we did yeah, like absolutely. Battle Beyond the Stars. It is Battle Beyond the Stars <laughs> more than it is Star Wars, but yeah, looking forward to it. I really am. I, I'll be there on and it's opening day to watch it. I just hope it doesn't end up as bloated as what Army of the Dead was. We'll see when it comes out. I'm excited to see what he does. I like. I always like to see what Zack Snyder does. I don't necessarily like what he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that makes any kind of sense. No, I got you. Uh, Joe Carnahan is back with a new action movie. Omar Sy, Kerry Washington are starring. Um, there's no sign of Frank Grillo yet, but that could possibly oh, happen. He's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> and it's a new action thriller called 
shadow force and he i'm assuming uh with his kind of recent track record that will end up on amazon prime yeah it's very likely he seems to have um, struck quite a exclusivity with amazon prime recently same way that guy Ritchie seems to be gravitating towards um, amazon prime the major the major streamers are snapping up names to do their brand and it seems that amazon's brand is spies and action thrillers which we'll talk about more later and of course they've now got the bond franchise which they're going to start showing yep. uh later this month yep lot lot of quick casting news this week so British singer and dancer FKA Twigs will star alongside Bill Skarsgård in the Crow reboot. She's going to play his fiance, who is killed alongside him when he's uh, he then resurrects as the spirit of the Crow. Although, according to reports, the part has been reconceived into a co-lead role. Does this suggest that there might be two vengeful Crow spirits? Mm. Which, if they do, then in a way I'm kind of glad because that means they're not just doing a remake of the same story. They're readapting it and exploring different avenues. We'll know more as this goes into further production. But so far, the two lead roles have been set. Rachel Zegler, who seems to be getting casting everything at the moment, is voicing the lead of Princess Elian for the animated musical Spellbound for Apple. Elian is a tenacious princess who must go on a daring quest to save her family and kingdom. Because that seems to be the, the running trend at the moment. Um, <laughs> the princesses have to be tenacious and they're their own heroes and they go on the quests because there's also Millie Bobby Brown's Damsel which is being put in production for Netflix that has now cast Angela Bassett as um, her stepmother. Damsel for those who don't know is a fantasy adventure about a princess who doesn't fancy fulfilling her destiny as a sacrifice to a dragon and so goes on a quest. So it looks like we're going to get away from it. She's very tenacious. <laughs> they're always tenacious. I, I, I'm looking forward to both of these projects. One's coming from Apple yeah, an animated movie coming from Apple. I'm up for that. And one's coming from Netflix with Millie Bobby Brown, not only leading, but also one of the producers on it. And yeah, I'm all up for seeing what Millie Bobby Brown delivers these days. Laura Dern and Liam Hemsworth are going to star in Susanna Grant's Morocco set romance, Lonely Planet for Netflix. Anthony Mackie and Priyanka Chopra is going to head up the action adventure Ending Things for Amazon. This one sees a hit woman wanting to retire, but joins forces with her partner for one last job. That old trope. Like I said, Amazon have a trope. They have a mm. style. Creed 3 casting is plowing ahead. And Salinas Levia, Thaddeus J. Mixon, Spence Moore II, and Myla Davis-Kent have joined Michael B. Jordan, Tessa Thompson, Jonathan Majors, Wood Harris, Florian Monto, and Felicia Rashad for the film, which is due out later this year. Uh, John Cena is set to star in an action comedy, Officer Exchange for Amazon. Playing Shepard, a wrecking ball of a cop who teams with an Indian police officer to take down a diamond struggling ring, smuggling ring in India. So Amazon again going for that uh, action adventure. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, John Cena's acting chops are for comedy, especially were, yes. were pretty good in in Peacemaker. Yeah, I'm I'm all I'm all here for John Cena in any comedies going forwards. Um, did this make you happy, Andy? Because uh, we've been waiting for. Um... Our much beloved Better Call Saul, which is due to appear very, very soon on Netflix with uh, season six. But I don't know if you've heard, and this will make you happy. Walter White and Jesse Pinkman are set to appear in the series. Yeah, I'd read that. And I'm curious as to what part of the time frame they're going to pop up in. Because Better Call Saul is set before Breaking Bad and apparently won't overlap timeline wise. But there's also the elements that are set after Breaking Bad. But... Walter White shouldn't be present at that point. Mm. So I, you know what? In, in lesser hands, I'd be I'd be worried, yeah. thinking this would be fan service. That's in lesser hands. But what we know, well, every decision from, that they've made writers. so far on this series 
has always panned out and always worked. So, yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm not worried. I'm just intrigued. Yes. So Marvel films are always long, aren't they? You know, two hours, two hours 30, two hours 40. We're so used to sitting through, like, really long films and enjoying them, but sometimes thinking, eh, maybe it should have been a bit shorter. Well, have you seen what Doctor Strange is coming in at? No, but I know it'll upset the fans if it's coming in short. Two hours and six minutes. 126 minutes in total. And that includes end credits. And those who've sat through the end credits of Marvel films know that that's about 13 minutes of end credits. Um, Has it started any online worry that uh, the film is now a mess because it's only coming in at two hours and not two and a half hours. There's some concern out there, but no one's taken... Everyone's got faith that Sam Raimi can manage to deliver a lot of things in a short space of time. So I think the confidence in the director is stopping this turning into a negative tirade on Twitter. There are people who are expressing concerns that, wow, from the trailers, there looks like there's a lot going on. Are they going to get this done? But yeah, Sam Raimi... I've got confidence in him and quite a lot of people out there have. I think a lot of people are excited to see how they can pull off a shorter Marvel film because we're so used to them being, you know, as long as they wanted to be. And when we say shorter, two hours is just about a general running time for most movies. Yeah, yeah so it, it it's, I mean, it means that there's more shows can get in through day. As tickets are on sale now. If you've not booked your tickets yet, get them booked because it's going to be a busy opening weekend on this film. But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how much they can pack in because there's all the speculation of how many cameos there's going to be, what kind of universes we're going to cross over into. It's very possible that most of the cameos will literally just be what we've already seen in the trailers. On the flip side for running times, Jurassic World Dominion is clocking in at 146 minutes, which makes it the longest film in the Jurassic franchise to date. So, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> as long as the story's good and it feels consistent, uh, that's all that matters. Yeah. Update on the Star Trek 4 news. Do the cast now know that they're, they're doing it? <laughs> well, yeah, you remember a few weeks ago when we spoke about the news that it'd been announced as Star Trek 4, and then the following week, the cast were all like, what, are we? We're all getting back together. Who told? Who, who decided? Well, Chris Pine has been out promoting all the old knives, and he's confirmed that he has actually met with the director, Matt Shackerman, and Paramount execs about the film, so it is a real project. He's also commented overall on the appeal of the franchise, and he suggested that maybe not trying to drag in a mass audience but target the core demographic is where they should go. As in his words, I've always thought Star Trek should operate in the zone that's smaller. You know, it's not Marvel appeal. It's like, let's make the movie for the people that love this group of people that love this story, that love Star Trek. Let's make it for them. And then if people want to come to the party, great. But make it for price and make it so that if it makes half a billion dollars, that's really good. That sounds that like these kind of discussions have gone on that it's not going to be a huge budget. It'll be reined in and be more Trek appeal. Um, Talking of Trek, have you seen the new trailers for Strange New World? Yes. Oh, I can't wait to... I hope we get uh, to see it. I I can't wait not to see it as well. Yeah, I I can't wait to just be upset that all the spoilers are online from people who watch it in America because we can't get it in the UK yet because Paramount can't get anything in gear and uh, deliver their service or put it back on one of the services that we do have until they deliver their service. Anyway, that was a rant for two months ago. (laughs) (laughs) I've not been this excited about a Star Trek series. Well, for since the announcement of the of the movie. It's kind of one of those things from Star Trek fandom that it's always been a project that we would have loved to have seen. I, I remember like way back in my teens, knowing that the cage had had a different 
captain in charge. And when we mm. saw that pilot episode, we were like, oh, this could have been interesting to see more of this expl- exploration. And then there's been like, you know, novelizations and comic books that have looked at that. And it's always been like, wow, stuff before classic Trek and before like Kirk took on board. And this is what we get a chance to. We're finally getting a chance to see stuff that those of us who've been in Trek fandom for decades. But yeah, it's this is this is like one of those. We've said it with the Marvel films that, you know, as comic book geeks growing up, we're living at a time that we never thought would happen. And we'd if we'd have had yeah, this true. when we were kids, we'd be exploding with joy. And this is another example of a project that makes me so happy to be living in the times that we're living in. Um, also, just sticking with Star Trek as an aside, have you seen the 4K restoration trailer for Star Trek The Motion Picture yet? I've not seen the trailer for it. I, 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 I do want to get the 4K restoration. I've got a lot of it love for it. It looks awesome. I, I got the DVD of the uh, uh, director's cut. Yeah. The Robert Wise director's cut. And, and it's, it's a much better film. On It's slightly shorter, which is different for a director's cut. Yeah. It's got replacement effects for where the effects were. It wasn't done. It's still a problematic film, but I've got a lot of love for it. It's yeah. it's the end of an era science fiction film, big budget science fiction film. Um, what I mean by that is big ideas as opposed to big space battles and, and, and the yeah. like. And the 4K cut, they've even updated the effects work for that. It looks awesome. I can't wait to see it. I'm hoping it gets uh, a cinema release because I, I think that's where it needs to be seen. Yeah. I've been watching on IMDb TV over the past couple of days, The Center Seat which is the uh, documentary series about the history of Star Trek, covering like the, okay. past, like, the 55 years. Uh, well worth checking out. It does do a, quite a lot about like cutting backwards and forwards that Netflix approached kind of do, does. Yeah. But it, the first few episodes cover a classic series, like where it, where it inspired from, the animated series, and then the movie, the motion picture. And then it's got to, like, I'm, I'm working through to get through the rest of the movies. Oh, that sounds interesting. I was aware of that. So, well, I need well, to spend we're more time out. with IMDb TV, to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot of good material on there, um, old material, but they're also making quite a lot of new material. So, well worth checking out. Um, David Finch's The Killer, which is based on the French graphic novel Leteur, which was adapted in 2007 by Cedric Anger, has finished shooting. He's reteamed okay. with Andrew Kevin Walker for this one, who you remember he worked with on Seven. On Seven, yeah. And the film sees Michael Fassbender as a solitary killer watching for his next target, but the longer he waits, the more he starts to doubt his sanity. Um, Tilda Swinton co-stars alongside him. Looking forward to seeing a trailer for this one. Do like Fincher. I like pretty much everything that he churns out. Yes, yeah. He's such a stylistic director. I would love him to go back and deliver another season from Mindhunter, because yeah. that was a, a, a fantastic series which the reason it didn't get finished it wasn't cancelled it just fell off everyone's schedules yeah but it deserves to have if not just a, a one episode just to, to finish it off let alone another season but it, it needs it needs finishing uh, I, mean, I am looking forward to a reappearance on netflix is the second season of russian doll i don't know if you ever got i didn't get a chance to, to see it was a fantastic uh a fantastic series uh natasha leon played nadia in a in a kind of a Groundhog Day-esque storyline that became quite surreal and, and very poignant. Absolutely loved the first season. It was a, um, one of the very few things that I binged. A season two trailer landed this week, and I just can't wait for the season. I can't see where they can go with it, so I'm 
I'm hanging in, ready to be surprised. Whoopi Goldberg has been announced as the villainous Birdwoman in the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Anansi Boys. I think that's for Prime as well. Yeah. Um, Orlando Bloom and Andy McDowell have signed on to star in the action thriller Red Right Hand, which will see Bloom play Cash, a man trying to live a quiet life, raising his niece in the Appalachian Hills. When the sadistic town queenpin, Big Cat, played by McDowell, forces him back into her services, he learns he's capable of anything, even killing to protect the only family he has left. Generic, eh, but it will be interesting to see Orlando Bloom making some reappearance into a, a career that i kind of forgotten what, what was the last thing we've seen him in? The last thing he did was, um, other than his reappearance in The Hobbit, was Carnival Row, which was a big, big budget Amazon series about a sort of an alternate world where fairy folk and the like exist uh, in this sort of steampunk industrial Europe. Did one season. I'm always assuming they were going to come back and do a second season, but I've not seen any announcements from that. But it, it was pretty well worth the watch. And uh, yeah. he played against type, which was, was interesting. The second season was greenlit in 2019, but then obviously the pandemic all hit and everything kind of got put on hold. But it's still apparently still in the pipeline. Yeah, it was a big big budget show, um, big sets, uh, shot, I think, in Prague. Uh, and they took advantage of that that kind of look. But uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to go back to it. But that was the last thing uh, last thing I saw him in. And we'll round off the news with, uh, that we didn't touch on this last week, but I want to touch on it this week, that Jim Carrey, who can be seen in Sonic 2 as Dr. Robotnik, has generally been quiet on the film front in recent years, no longer snapping up roles everywhere which appears it's because he's considering retiring or at least taking an extended break. In his words, well, I'm retiring. Yeah, probably. I'm being fairly serious. It depends. If the Angels bring some sort of script that's written in gold ink that says to me that it's going to be really important for people to see, I might continue down the road. But I'm taking a break. I really like my quiet life and I really like putting paint on canvas and I really love my spiritual life and I feel like, and this is something you might never hear another celebrity say as long as time exists, I've had enough. I've done enough. I am enough. What this means for the Sonic franchise going forwards with a third film already in planning and a TV series in the pipeline, no one knows as of yet. But looks like uh, Jim Carrey's bowing out gracefully from quite a quite a prominent career over the past few decades. Yeah, it's a career that he's 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 deliberately wound down. I mean, there has been this sense of, of you know pick and choosing projects, big gap between one film and the next, uh, and, and we know that he. he he put aside the kind of crazy character mm. comedy that he'd been done to have much more thoughtful roles. For me, his, his, the best thing he ever did was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless mm. Mind, which I think was a, a fantastic film, but with a central, fantastic performance by Carrie. I, I think, you know, having read interviews with him, I think he struggled a lot with, with his mental health. Best thing for him. Uh, and, and, you know, bow out while you're on top. You know, he's got a number one film at the moment yeah why not now call it a day and it's kind of like a, a number one film that's brought him full circle because he started off with that wild and zany approach characters yeah worked through all his man on the moon truman show more serious era and then has finished his if, if this is indeed the end of his career he's finished his career on a high in a wild and zany role again that he clearly had a lot of fun getting involved yeah. in so yeah if you are retiring and if you do listen to the show i'm sure you do in some time and space and dimension. I'm sure that he listens to the show. So uh, thanks for the memories. And we will enjoy re-watching all of his roles again throughout the years. Fantastic. And that is the news. 
Still with us? Good, because we've got much more to come as we look into this week's deep dive. But hey, if you're not a subscriber, then why not? All we ask is you head over to your favorite podcast platform, check out the film file, hit the subscribe button, remember to leave a like, and hey, maybe even leave a review. A positive one would be uh, much welcome. But if you want to know more about the world of the film file, and there is a world of film file, all you have to do is this. You can head on over to Twitter and you can follow us at Film File UK, where you can engage in our questions of the week and also get involved in the weekly Sunday hashtag movie talk on Sunday MTOS, where we discuss a topic and ask 10 questions and just get get responses. Or you could head to other social media platforms, search for Film File UK, where you'll be kept up to date with latest episodes of the show, etc, etc. You could head over to WordPress, filmfileuk.wordpress.com. Uh, again, you will get the updates as each of the shows goes live. Or you can email us thoughts, suggestions, queries, films you want us to see, films you don't want us to see, films you disagree with us for on, anything film related. Disagree with us? How dare they? <laughs> anything film related, anything TV and entertainment related. Hey, anything related as far as I'm concerned. Just send us an email and uh, we'll get back to you. And if your ideas are great, we will include you on the show. And we, indeed we will. Podcast at filmfile.uk. This week's deep dive is uh, a kind of a, a, I think, a very personal deep dive for both Andy and I. This takes us back into um, into our childhoods, not liked by everyone, but loved by many. Uh, it's a strange turn of events that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at the 1965 British science fiction film directed by Gordon Fleming, written by horrormeister Milton Sabelsky. The first of two films based on the British science fiction TV series Doctor Who stars Peter Cushing as literally Doctor Who. And first up, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who and the Daleks. This is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's there? Who's there? You have invaded the world of the Daleks. Every move you make, we can see. Back in 1963, when Doctor Who landed on the BBC, it did okay. And then they introduced the Daleks in the second episode. And boy, did everybody go crazy for the Daleks. It became the must-watch show, a much-loved show. The TV series at that time starred William Hartnell as the Doctor with his granddaughter, Susan. It was pretty much set the format for the Doctor Who that we know today. In light of this, there were two big screen outings. Low budget, actually very low budget, costing £180,000 per movie, which, trust me, I think I'd made music videos for about that. They had the one big advantage that the TV series could not deliver, and that was, wait for it, folks, colour. Yes, these movies were in colour, and if you've had the good fortune to see them, boy, are they colourful. They redesigned the Daleks to, to become more imposing. They're bigger. Uh, and more colourful. You get red Daleks, blue Daleks, black Daleks. Uh, you get a very, very different take on Doctor Who as played by Peter Cushing. He's actually a character called Doctor Who who invents uh, a, a time and space machine 
Why in the form of a police box? We don't know. And along with his granddaughters, Susan and Barbara, and Barbara's boyfriend, Ian, they are accidentally transported to another planet by Doctor Who's latest invention. Upon discovering a city, they come across the Daleks. And boy, do they have fun for the next 82 minutes. As I said, got a lot of love for this film. Uh, I remember going to see it at uh, uh, a special screening one Saturday afternoon. I think it's the first time that my mum had dropped me off at the cinema and I was allowed to go in on and sit by myself and watch a film. Uh, and for all its issues, and there's a, a, a huge list of issues with it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. This is not the Doctor Who from the TV series. The Doctor's not a Time Lord, he's an inventor. He is wonderfully played by Peter Cushing, who brings the character to light as a kind of forgetful grandfather type, as opposed to William Hartnell's more sort of acerbic Doctor. It doesn't fit into any of the established canon. It is what it is. And it's uh, probably more fun for it. Did well, so much so that there was a sequel. But Andy, we know that elements from the programme were used and various characters such as the Daleks and the police box were all reimagined into this film and subsequent film. Do you have love for the original Doctor Who and the Daleks? I do. It's it's maybe not as nostalgic love as you have because you got to see this at the cinema as a youngin. I got to see it on TV after having been made aware of it years beforehand. So I was I, I was must have been about eleven when I finally got to see this. And so it didn't quite strike me because by that point, you know, Tom Baker was my doctor and right. then Peter Davidson straight after. And so I'd already seen like what was now canon and what was now important to the Lord of Doctor Who before seeing this movie. And so I remember like finding a strange curiosity with it when I first watched it. Because it was like, well, this isn't Doctor Who, but it's kind of, I like the look of it and I like the style of it and I get what it's doing. And then because we didn't have like, I forgot to press uh, record and play at the same time on the tape deck when I first watched it. So <laughs> I had to wait for this to come on TV again years later before they had a chance yeah. to explore it. And it was to be about six years later. So I was in my late teens when I got a chance to rediscover it. And I, find, I kind of embraced it. I recognise it's a flawed film. I recognise it's a, it's a bit of a mess. But you can't blame the fact that it's not part of canon and law for its faults. Yeah. Because when this was made, the canon didn't exist. It, we, still, we were still on, on the William Hartnell area. There was not any talk about regenerations at that point in time. You know, this could have quite well have just been the new canon. But it took, like you say, it took the second serial, it took the Doctor Who and the Daleks, and it adapted it for a TV format. Now, in adapting it, it's shrunken down. Was Doctor Who and the Daleks five or six episodes? I think at the time, I think it was about six episodes. Yeah. Uh, so it shrunk down the story, and it made a few chops and changes. The character of Barbara was the school teacher in the TV series. She's now one of his granddaughters. And yes, there's no reference to aliens and Gallifrey, etc. But then again, by this point on the TV series, there wasn't mentions of Gallifrey, Time Lords, etc. So it was creating its own law because there wasn't a law to establish. I, I remember just being fascinated by the design of the Daleks. And like I said, I discovered information about this film before I actually got a chance to see it because I used to get books out on Doctor Who and I used to read all the novelizations yeah, from the library. And there was one that had still images in it from this film and its sequel. I remember thinking, wow, they're colourful. And the Daleks, like you say, the striking choice of colour schemes for the Daleks make them stand out. And I actually kind of prefer them 
to the usual subdued, like dull greys and dull oranges and dull bronzes. I prefer bright red, bright blue, black with gold specks, anything that makes it stand out because there's something chilling about what is effectively a single manned armoured tank that is actually quite bright and cheerful to look at. There's something that really like messes, like, it plays with the whole thing. This looks pretty, but man, it's deadly and it messes with you. When I watched it in my late teens, like I say, I embraced it and it's a film and it's sequel that I go back to every now and then. I've got them both on Blu-ray. I enjoy revisiting them. But I acknowledge that they're flawed. I, I I agree with everything that you say. I think when I saw them when I was little, I think I was just in awe. I was a huge Doctor Who fan as a, as a, as a tiny boy. And I think it was just great to see. I think my head tried to fill in the gaps. You know, um, I knew that Susan in the TV series was a teenager in this. She's just a little girl. I think I tried to kind of figure it all out. What I, I do agree with you with the design of the Daleks and the big screen version, making them bigger and bulkier, uh, and, and more imposing. And, and strange enough, which has gone full circle because Stephen Moffat mm-hmm. loved that design and took that design on. And it's now the look of, of, uh, of the Daleks in the TV series. Um, but yeah, they were just fun. I mean, it's always great to see Peter Cushing playing a, a, a more softer comedic role. And he did it very, very well. It was the staple that used to just hold your breath that they would appear on TV uh, during Easter holidays, for instance, or Christmas yeah. holidays. Because back in those days, folks, you just had to wait till a broadcaster put something on. And I remember that when you get the Radio Times and you saw that it was going to happen, it was a stay in and watch kind of thing as I was growing up. In fact, so much so, because I was a geek, um, <laughs> that one particular uh, bank holiday, they put on unannounced. Uh, Doctor Who Invasion Earth 2150 uh, to fill a gap in the schedule because of bad weather at the cricket or something ridiculous like that. And I was so disappointed because I'd never got a chance to see that one. Uh, and I remember writing to the BBC with some friends and going, please, Mr. BBC, could you show <laughs> this film again? And they um, and they didn't. They showed Doctor Who and the Daleks again. <laughs> so I've got a, a, a lot of love for the second one, yeah. uh, which is not quite as 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 comedic as the as the first one yeah it's yeah the comedy that's forced in to the first one with roy castle's character in particular it kind of makes the film feel tonally all over the place it doesn't quite sit well with what is effectively when you look at this the story of doctor who and the daleks a pondering thesis on war at the core of it and yet you've got um, Pratt falls and you've got like you've you've more or less got slide whistle kind of like gag routines like it could be in a carry-on film it's that kind of like slapstick prat foolery but then you get to um daleks invasion earth 2150 let's be clear it's not called doctor who daleks invasion earth 2150 the big draw was the daleks let's be honest not doctor who everybody wanted to see daleks they were the pop culture craze at the time which is it's also possibly a response to the fact that cushing while filming the second one was quite unwell and so they had to rejig the script to reduce his shooting schedule which is why the focus is on more of his companions than actually on the doctor in the second one and at the time that was unheard of because on tv the doctor was always front and center he was always the prime character but now in this day and age i think people can go back and re-watch invasion earth 2150 and get more appreciation because we're used to the companions taking center stage quite frequently but the second one it's a darker tale it's a post-apocalyptical um, dystopian future ruled by the Daleks. And the instead of having Roy Castle along for the ride, Bernard Cribbins is now PC Tom Campbell. 
who accidentally stumbles into the police phone box because he thinks it's a police phone box and he wants to get back up on something and ends up getting thrust into this future alongside the Doctor where they join a resistance to take down the Dalek intrusion. And it's it's bigger, it's brighter. The design work of the Dalek ships, marvellous. Yes, you can see the strings attached. Yes, if you want to be picky, you can pull holes on some of the dodgy effects. But look again at the time that this was made and realise the steps it was taking and adapting. Again, this was a serial from the second season of Doctor Who and, again, adapted to the big screen to present it in... To present dark themes in an open and accessible way. Because it has got a lot of dark themes in this second one. You've got the replication of humans into robotic monsters. You've got the Daleks themselves, which are a dark analogy of war in its entirety and the machinations of war. I think that everyone holds together better. Yes, Bernard Cribbins does a bit of um, tomfoolery for a couple of scenes, but it doesn't take away from this second film just being a staggering adaptation of a Doctor Who serial to the big screen it's it's a lot of fun it's um it's clearly a 1960s version of uh, the year 2150 uh, right down to the to the vehicles that they drive but there's some core elements true sort of terry nation core elements that, that remain from the series and uh, that it makes its way into the big screen bernard cribbins doesn't quite he has one big comedy moment in it with this sort of choreographed scene with the robo men the dining scene the dining scene yeah but it's not quite as as uh comedically played as roy castle's version of it, it it's it's a, it's a lot of fun and it would have been interesting had they gone with the the third film that they were going to do which which were episodes within the series called the chase mm. and it was always intended that they were going to do this this next next Doctor Who movie, but this one didn't do as well at the box office, if I remember correctly. No, it's it, it undersold, underperformed at the box office, and unfortunately, it meant that they never footed any money to make that third film. Because Amicus, they, they only paid five hundred pounds to the BBC. I know, it's unbelievable to get the rights to three stories. That's unbelievable. But the second one just wasn't as much of a success as the first one. And that's probably one of the reasons why, like you say, the BBC never re-showed it. It was never considered appealing enough. And so they focused on that first film that was a a success as the one that they will constantly re-show on TV over the years. Which is why Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 was more of a curiosity than that first Doctor Who and the Daleks because tracking it down up until recent years was a nightmare. But now we've, we've got the digitally restored blu-ray editions with extra features on them you know we're living in an age where we can explore these we can find them easily but back when we were young finding these things was impossible yeah i had to just keep reading the novelization of it in order to experience daleks invasion earth 2150 after the first time i'd watched it because i couldn't find it anywhere well that's right and and as we know a lot of those episodes no longer exist because the bbc uh, in a bid to save money reused the tapes and recorded over the tapes so unless anything appears in a, an attic as seems to happen every few years um, you never get chance to to see some of those episodes so they belong in either your memories or in whatever in whatever way that you could read about it like the novelizations or or uh, annuals and that kind of thing and that's how you that's how you remember them um, but with both films I have an awful lot of love for I think as, yeah. as you said they are they're cheap in comparison. They're a bit silly, but they're a lot of fun. And 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 I've got I've got the love for that fun as a nine or ten year old seeing 
probably both films for this for the first time and and again seeing it in color and seeing uh, an era of doctor who that i've i've never had a chance to watch and uh you know it, it was they were a big deal at the time there's always been talk of, of a doctor who movie even as of recently yeah another offshoot doctor who movie i've got a couple of scripts for unmade unused doctor who uh, ideas one that was to feature tom baker uh, another one was kind of a reinvention of the Daleks. It was almost like spider-like uh, creatures. But I don't think we'll ever get a, a, a big movie outing. And I don't know if it'll necessarily work as a big movie outing, but I've, yeah. I'll have some love for these two because they are about a time and a place, ultimately. The closest we've ever had was the Paul McGann movie from the 90s, which finally got accepted as being part of canon and law in recent history up until that point there was arguments in the doctor who fan base whether that actually slotted in as part of the canon i think only two years ago they were talking about a potential big screen outing for doctor who but all that that will be now is an offshoot of the actual series that we see on tv it won't be as it won't be daring enough to be as different and as fresh as what these two films were because the fan base if they get a big screen outing now they just want david tennant coming back they just want Capaldi coming back, they all just want the established names. And that's the problem that we've got in this day and age is that everyone wants their own particular doctor. When these films came out, there wasn't anything more than just one doctor. So if you want to check them out, you can do so by... They're both available to buy and rent on all the services. I'm surprised, as you are, that they're not actually available on BritBox for free at this point in time. Yeah, I thought that's where we'd find them. BritBox do regularly add a chunk of stuff on there. And so there's only got, there's going to become a time when they will drop on there, at which point I'll add them into the coming up this week on streaming section of the show. So if you don't want to rent them at the moment and you want to give it a shot and wait and see if you can hold out until BritBox get them, I'll let you know as soon as they're on there. Fantastic. So it's now time for this week's reviews. And Andy, of course, has been doing the Lord's work by seeing as much as possible. Um, we've both got one to talk about. But before that, Andy, do you want to give a roll on with this week's reviews? Yep. So I'll start off with All the Old Knives that landed on Amazon as an Amazon original. They've opened the books on flight 127. The hijackers had help from inside our station here in Vienna. We need to find out if we had a mole. Vic has me looking into flight 127. So this is an interview. I thought you were here to see if we still had that old spark. To old friends. Oh, you can do better than that. To old lovers. Chris Pine and Tandy Newton head up the cast in this old school styled spy drama, which sees the events of a hijacking that resulted in a mass loss of lives eight years previously being investigated as new information has come to light. Pine's character is tasked with interviewing those involved after word that someone inside the department supplied the terrorists with information and his questioning leads to his old flame, Newton. The first 20 minutes felt like a bit of a slog. The flashing back and forth in time as the events that transpired around the hijacking are investigated felt drawn out. But after that initial bumpy, quite exposition-filled start was out the way, it was easy to fall into the film, aided by the prominent central roles of Pine as Henry and Newton as Celia. As the backstory plays out and we discover the relationship the pair had, which may or may not have been a factor in the events that transpired around the hostage crisis, the pair sizzle on screen. Lawrence Fishburne and Jonathan Price are in support roles alongside the pair, and the star power alone is enough to sell this film. But most of all, it's Pine who really gets a chance to shine 
in a role quite different from the usual vibe that he's cast for. And he gets a chance to show off his range a bit more than what he generally does. Plot-wise, the film is generic. Any thrilling twists and turns of the story are maybe a tad too obvious to anyone who's seen a handful of dialogue-driven spy dramas, but it serves its purpose. Feeling like it is just the right pacing throughout, the film is a taut 101 minutes long, knowing when to carefully sow seeds of the story and when to let them grow. All the Old Knives is a decent but not great spy drama, which has enough acting weight in it to paste over the cracks in the film. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how much I fancied this one until I started seeing positive reviews. When I first sort of read up on it, it felt it felt very theatrical as opposed to I'm not that it should be an action uh, an action adventure, but it did feel sort of sort of theatrical. Definitely recommend this one. And then my second review is sticking with dialogue heavy and tense conversations. The outfit that landed at cinemas this week. You could have a shop anywhere you like, and yet you're here. What's wrong with you? I can think of a few things. His shop is their cover. Don't want to be involved in whatever it is you do. But once he lets them in... Somebody's been ratting us out to the feds. Whoa. You're hiding something. There's no way out. Sew him up. I can't. Sew him up. You want to survive the night? You look them dead in the eyes and pretend you're one of them. The Outfit. A bespoke tailor's shop is the setting for this rope meets reservoir dog's tale about a rat within the 1950s Chicago mob scene. Leonard Burling, Mark Rylance, runs a bespoke tailor's shop in a Chicago neighbourhood, which is run by the Irish mob boss Roy Boyle. The shop is used as a front and a stash house for dirty money and secret drops. However, when one of the drops made comes from The Outfit, an organisation founded by Al Capone, and warns of a rat feeding info to mob boss rival LaFontaine and the FBI, it begins a series of events that escalates within the shop. Over the course of one evening, events transpire within those walls that will impact on the mob rule forever. Rylance is absolutely engaging in the somewhat reserved yet complicatedly layered Leonard. His unassuming character, with a dry and sometimes dangerous wit, is packed with charm but an element of mystery. As the events of the night play out and we learn more of his backstory, Rylance delivers time and time again on emotion and drama and ensures that we have someone to connect with in this tale set in an arena where everyone is untrustworthy. Around Rylance, we have able support from Zoe Dutch as Mabel, his assistant in the shop to whom he has an almost paternal care for, Johnny Flynn as Francis, the friend and bodyguard of Boyle's son, Richie, played by Dylan O'Brien. Simon Russell Beale as Roy Boyle and Nicky Amuka Bird as LaFontaine round off the core players and more than complement the story. The single location setting and short time frame of one night allow for taut plotting and add to the intensity of the proceedings and keep you hooked in. There's no time for diversions, no attention drawn away from the focus of the story, the plotting and the sharp dialogue grabbing you from the start and keeping hold right to the closing moments. To be fair, with how great Rylance is from the offset, this could have actually been a whole film about how to tailor a fine suit and I'd have still been engaged with it throughout. One of the best examples of a modern day old school style thriller and one to definitely check out. You see, you had me on Mark Rylance. I think, as, as we've said many times, Mark Rylance is just one of those actors that we just we just enjoy their work. I'm, I'm disappointed that I didn't get to see this. I thought it was coming out later this week, so I'll try to hunt that one down. But anyway, unusually so, <laughs> a film that we've both seen and we both can talk about. Doesn't happen very often, so raise the flags, blow the fans <laughs> yeah, there. It's a national holiday because of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is the new bank holidays that we're getting in the UK every time that we both see a film at the same time. Well, we didn't actually see it at the same time. I got I watched it last week, but we held off on the review until Lee got to see it because we're talking about Richard Linklater's Apollo Ten and a Half, which landed on Netflix. As we know, Lee's a huge Linklater fan. So there was no way I of reviewing this without him. I, I am. I mean, I'm going right back to Slacker for me. I saw Slacker at uh, at a festival and loved it and loved its sort of looseness, which is a, a thing that runs through all of Linklater's films. They aren't, probably apart from School of Rock, there's a very easygoing narrative that, that runs through all of his films. And sometimes it works wonderfully. Sometimes it, it doesn't. I, I think where it works amazingly well is dazed and confused yeah. the sort of follow-up to that uh, everybody wants some doesn't quite gel its looseness um de- detracts from the heart of what the story is but that's his style and that's what draws me to it and and it's certainly that quality in this film we need a kid like you to test this accidentally smaller version on the lunar surface and soon stan you're our only hope okay Great. Let's forget about all this for now. We'll come back to this part later. First, let me tell you about life back then. Living in the Houston area in the late 60s, it was a great time and place to be a kid. But the world was changing, and so was how we saw ourselves in it. Right on. (laughs) Mom, is that one a hippie? Yeah, yeah, that's a hippie. How about that one? No, his hair's not long enough. But he's wearing bell bottoms. Okay, that's a hippie. I think I like hippies. The film sees a man voiced by Jack Black, of all people, narrating stories of his life as a fourth grader back in 1969 in Houston, weaving tales of nostalgia with a fantastical account of a journey to the moon that he claims that he went on himself. It's set alongside the race to the moon with all the events of the world at the time being reflected and it's a beautifully animated picture in that style that Linklater did before in Waking Life and of course A Scanner Darkly. A rotoscoped, almost perfectly realistic but fantastical at the same time animation approach. Yeah, as you said he's used this before, he'd used it in Waking Life which I've not seen Uh, and I think A Scanner Darkly is one of the best Philip K. Dick adaptations there is. And that's where the idea of of using rotoscope created this odd existence. But in this, it kind of detaches us from from any sense of reality, which is a good thing, because this film is about a nostalgic point of view. It's beautifully uh, designed, beautifully coloured. Almost every shot is a work of art. Um, And as you said, we deal around Stanley, as you said, Jack Black is, is the narrator. Who's one of those kids who's who's a dreamer, or as he calls himself, a fabulist? And he's got this sort of uh, um, fuzzy line between reality and fiction, which runs through the story at, at times when you, you're not quite sure what is the reality and what is the fiction. But this is a film that is all about nostalgia in 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 the perfect way, and so the dreamlike quality of the of the story of going into space yeah. is is second to almost a, a, a love letter, a list letter in places to, to the late 60s. The animation style allows them to present a version of American suburbia that looks as fantastical as it did in sitcoms of that era. It's the picket fence, white picket fences. It's the perfect households, everything pastel colours. And it really gives it a beauty, which I think if it had been shot live and framed live, it would have been harder to manage to get that 
like you say, the nostalgic elements because it is someone reflecting on his own childhood. And so it's going to be filled with flights of fancy. The biggest surprise for me initially was once I got to the end of it and realised that was Jack Black who's been narrating because Jack yeah. Black... Norm, if someone said Jack Black's going to narrate this, you're expecting like, but he doesn't. He just, he's a great voice actor. Yeah, he's he, he brings fantastic. some real warmth to it. Because yeah, we've heard him just doing voice acting before in things like Kung Fu Panda, but you can tell it's Jack Black. But with this, you can't tell it because it feels like a very mature, reflective backstory. And it is a very mature, reflective backstory. Yes, the blurring between reality and fiction is very, very embedded together. But it evokes the spirit and the atmosphere of that late 60s era. It it pulls on like on, on encroaching wars. It pulls on the hippie movement. It pulls on everything from that era. I, I didn't live in that era. I don't know that era. And yet I felt like I was remembering that era myself while watching it. Well, I, I did, which was interesting. <laughs> I was younger than the, 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 the stand character, but... I remember watching the moon landing. I, I remember being caught up in that wave. And that was what? That was 1969. Yeah. So I'd have been six, six around that time. And I, I remember enough of it to have made an impact. So this idea, this sort of like dreamlike, childlike perspective of, of uh, nostalgic events rang true. I mean, there's at one point, literally the film stops to list the favorite TV shows of the <laughs> time. And it, if it, if there's any critique about this film, and, and it's nothing that would take me out of it, is that at times kind of that looseness in Linklater's style means that there's not much of a, a driving narrative. It is a series of nostalgic vignettes, and, and I'm pretty certain they're plucked from uh, Linklater's own life. But if that was the, the only critique I was going to throw at this film, and that that's minimal, at times it didn't know quite where it was going to go, but that never bothered me truly. It was just a, a beautiful, different experience. It was almost a, a, a counterpoint to, the, to a movie like First Man, which I, I, I adored, because we, we saw the we saw the game-changing event of the moon landing through mm. childlike eyes. I, I, I thought it was a, a, a beautiful animated film, and yes, it is an animated film, and a real time capsule of a period. Also, I want to do a, a mention to... Uh, yeah, you know how much I love my choice needle drops. Yeah. And the needle drops in this, like I said, like I said before, you know, this made me feel like I was living those years, even though I didn't live there. The needle drops also helped really bring up that nostalgic memory that I haven't actually got. Uh, and made me, <laughs> made me believe that I lived through the hippie era. Marvellous needle drops throughout, which I kind of expected from Link later. But everything's placed so well but it's the animation style that really captivated me i saw the trailer after it had already landed on netflix because the biggest disservice this film has had is how netflix have just dumped it on the service and yeah. hope that the algorithms will push it to people this should have been showcased by them this should be something that they're blowing trumpets and horns and fanfares and putting the flags up to say everyone should watch this but the burying films like this whilst they're putting all the money behind you know enjoyable dreck like red notice yeah yeah and it's a shame. This is what your Scorsese's and this is what your Patty Jenkins are saying about streaming is that films that get released directly to streaming, they just appear and disappear. They're nothingness. Yeah. It's not a way to present cinema. This is a prime example. This film should have had huge fanfares. It's a marvellous, marvellous film. When I saw that little clip of trailer as I hovered over it, I was just like, within five seconds, I was like, I'm watching this now. Click. Because it just looks so sumptuous. And I 
cannot recommend it enough. This is probably my recommendation of the year so far. I, I'm going to agree with everything that you say, Andy. And if you haven't found it, if you've not discovered it, then do yourself a favour. Give yourself an hour and a half of, of pure, unadulterated nostalgia and uh, a film that is set in the stars, but is really about, really about the heart. So that's the reviews. Andy, uh, what's coming up over the next week? So Cinemas This Week sees The Lost City, Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, in a modern-day Romancing the Stone-esque adventure. I'm actually feeling more, more curiosity to watch this as it's getting closer. Yeah, I know what you mean. I must admit, when I uh, when we first saw it and we saw those first trails for it, I, I had no love for it whatsoever, no interest. But as it's as it's moved on a little bit, yeah, I'm starting to think it's it's worthy of our time now. Um, Operation Mincemeat, which I know is a title that makes you chuckle. <laughs> I think it's the worst title for a film, even though it's a, a true it's a, title. It's an actual true story. Uh, wartime drama about an absurd, absurd real-life World War II operation. And the film that I have been most looking forward to this year so far, The Northman. Robert Eggers' bloody and brutal Viking yes, revenge wait. tale lands. Oh, this is top of my list. And if we're not talking about this next week, I'm cancelling the show. Oh, we will be. I promise you. <laughs> Over on streaming, Sky and Now TV, Dune lands this week. But then better than that, Paw Patrol the movie. Hey, don't watch Dune. Watch Paw Patrol the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's the top of everyone's list. <laughs> you know what? I am going to watch Paw Patrol the movie and I will report back on what I think about it. Because uh, I've heard from some colleagues okay. who have worked with through the years that they expected it to be disastrous but actually found themselves strangely enjoying it so um, i'm gonna i'm gonna tease myself with that one uh, on netflix choose or die which sees a lost 80s survival horror game with a hidden curse attached to it which is awoken when a young coder stumbles upon the curse tearing her reality apart as she's forced to make terrifying and deadly decisions on amazon well there's not much getting released only all the bond films yes all the bond films including no time to die it's it's been on the cards for for uh, well, ever, ever since we knew that um, MGM was being bought out yeah. by Amazon, so it's, it's been waiting to happen. They have said that they are going on there for a limited time, so this is your chance to watch everything Bond when they land on Amazon Prime this week. And on Disney Plus, Le Mans 66, otherwise known as Ford versus Ferrari, which saw Bale and Damon playing against each other in a true life story. If you've not seen it, it is well worth checking out. It was a great film, absolutely fantastic biopic. And that's not a bad week for films across all the services. No, no, there's some uh, some highlights for that. Hopefully, I'm going to get to see you this week, and we'll get to see some of those uh, together. Definitely need to see The Northman um, yes. and The Lost City. Yeah, I mean. Uh, that's it, folks, for this week. Uh, well, just about it. But before we go, and we do this every week, it's now time for our neat things. Stuff that we've watched, enjoyed, a been, you name it, whatever we've done, we're going to talk about our neat thing. Andy, have you got a neat thing for this week? I have. I have. I have two neat things that are kind of well, similarly enough, themed. So do I. I've been mine are wildly apart, but we'll go for it. My, mine are similarly themed. Now, everyone over the recent months has been obsessed with Wordle. Everyone has been trying to guess the words each day in so many moves. And some people were so obsessed with things like Wordle that they started playing Quirdle, which gives you four words to guess at the same time. Or even Octurdle, which sounds wrong, but um, is eight <laughs> words. I think I once time. had that. I, I, <laughs> I, took, I got some ointment and I'm fine. <laughs> well, I'm latching on now to two different games 
that have the same kind of basis that you'll start seeing those little green, orange and red blocks popping up on people's social media feed as they do the daily solves. And they are framed and hurdle. Now framed, you have six steps in which to guess a film and it will use still images from the film as each of the steps from them. And I love it. Anything that is like, what's, what film is this, this image from? I will always try to decipher, and I'm doing quite well on frames so far. Okay. I, I've got the last few ones within one or two moves. Um, I mean, admittedly, a couple of days ago, one of them, the first one was a barren, empty leaves, forest, skyline. But then the second one was a, an old-style flip alarm clock that says 6 a.m. And straight away, Sonny and Cher sprung into my head. I went, this is Groundhog Day. Boom, got it right. Uh, <laughs> yesterday's one was a, it looked like a, a, a deprived tower block. In the sky behind the clouds, there was a light there. And it, it, it within seconds, I was like, well, that's Black Panther, isn't it? Uh, and I didn't need the other images. But it's great the way that it plays it. That it always gives you one that if you know the film, you should be able to recognize it. But then the next one will be a, even like it'll be a closer clue. And then it, they'll become quite obvious before the last clues. And then you get Hurdle. Now, Hurdle is a similar thing, but with music. And it's intros to songs. Oh, I'd, I'd have liked that one. You get one second of the intro to the song and you have to try and guess it. If you get it wrong, you can progress it to add another second on. Then you can progress it to add another two seconds on. And then you can progress it to add another five seconds on. Until that you get, I think it's a maximum of about like 20 seconds of the intro for your final guess. And generally I'm doing okay on these. Uh, admittedly, on some of them, the first second plays, and I then have to sit there singing the whole song before I can actually get to the title of it, which happened the other day with one of them. But there was one the other day, which was, um, it started off and instantly it was like, well, that's Dancing Queen by Abbott because it's the most obvious intro. I was just like, yep, that's Dancing Queen. Uh, <laughs> well worth checking out. So if you're fed up of Wordle, if you're fed up of guessing words and getting frustrated because you're not getting any of your letters right, check out Hurdle and Framed. Do a search for them on Google, hurdle.app and framed.wtf and well daily little check-ins on there to different games each day absolute fun enjoyment on the bus or tram okay so uh, mine is an, an interesting one i'm gonna go with something that i'm watching on apple plus i'm quickly gonna mention though because I, I, as i said at the beginning of the podcast so uh, no barriers radio listeners check out our podcast that we went away to edinburgh for a week and had a good time but coming back stopped and had some fast food now i'm not a fast food fan at all but uh nipped into mcdonald's again something i would never do and they are now doing plant-based uh quarter pounders which are absolutely delicious and it's helping me on the road not to be a, a vegan but to be uh more plant-based in my diet and i've always said that it once once places like mcdonald's start embracing it and then i think it's it's becoming an easier trick for everyone but that's not my neat thing that was just a, a neat thing addition Apple Plus at the moment has is showing some great, great series. We've been looking at um, Severance over the last couple of weeks, which I've talked mm. about. Uh, the other show to talk about, the must show at the moment, is Slow Horses that stars Gary Oldman. And it's a kind of an interesting take on the Spy series. If you screw up in MI5 or MI6, you get kicked out of the ivory towers and you get sent to this division known as slough house the slow horses of the title where you basically pay your penance uh, and are given sort of the worst spy jobs that you can get uh we get uh, a character who is 
in the first five minutes almost establishes himself as as a James Bond until it all goes terribly, terribly wrong and ends up for the rest of his career so far becoming one of the slow horses, which is run by Gary Oldman, who is at his most grossest. He's, he's flatulent. He's a misogynist. He's an alcoholic. He smokes too much. He's overweight. Completely unpleasant character. And of course, wonderfully played by Gary Oldman. I'm only episode one in, but I was hooked from episode one. It had all the best elements that you remember from the first season of Killing Eve. It's the downside of the spy industry. It's the um, the staying up late and eating takeaways and, and doing the garbage jobs that these characters have to do. It's got a dark sense of humour that runs through it that is almost kind of reminiscent in some way of The Office as you get to discover the rest of the characters around it. Uh, wonderfully shot, got a theme song by the one and only Mick Jagger. This is great TV. If this was on the BBC, everyone would be talking about it and applaud it as a plenty. Uh, the fact it's on Apple Plus means that they can spend all the money and get someone of Gary Oldman's caliber on board. But episode one is a winner. Can't wait to catch up with the rest of the series. And they are dropping them, I think, uh, I think they dropped the first two or three, uh, and then they're dropping them weekly after that one. But but a great piece of, of TV. Almost, I would have to say, classic BBC, but it's on Apple. Um, and as we said with Apple, it's not the quantity, it's certainly the quality. And my neat thing is slow horses. And that, folks, is us. We're done for this week. We'll be back again with another film file next week. Uh, thank you for spending your time with us. It's always our pleasure to bring you the show. Andy, anything, uh, any big plans other than uh, um, <laughs> cutting this show? Usually just cut. Well, I do intend to get this edited this week before me day off so I can enjoy a day off and do something because there's loads of things that are put on the back burner. There's TV shows that I've not caught up on. There's games that I've, I've not got around to playing. But I, you know me. I will just procrastinate and I'll end up like on Twitter just uh, poking fun at uh, various aspects of films and telling people to avoid Morbius. But um, <laughs> no, no major plans. The kids are still off for this week. So it's just going to be another another week of not being able to get on the TV because someone's watching a film or playing on the PlayStation. <laughs> well, um, that's it. We'll see you again next week. But when I push that lever, this room and everything in it will dissolve into their respective components and electrical charges. We're all made of them. Thank you.